Warning. Contained herein lies information that is both dark and disturbing. It is pulled directly from the archives of the repository. Should you find yourself offended by not only this episode, but the bulk of this podcast, we recommend going to your nearest religious institution or windowless room where the ills of the world cannot harm your piteously fragile way of thinking. You have been warned. In the back of your mind lies a place. A place where every disturbing visual and dark piece of information lie in wait. Some choose to run from it. Some choose to deny this place even exists. But not you. You find yourself enticed by this wellspring of the macabre. It calls to you. It beckons you. A voice in the dark. You seek an ally. Someone to walk you through the depths of this place. And that search brings you to me. Allow me to introduce myself. My name is Mr. Blackheart. And welcome to the repository. Greetings, Acolytes. Welcome back to the Repository. I am your host, Chronicler of the Dark and Lorekeeper of the Murderous and Macabre, Mr. Blackheart. I want to first say that I'm a huge video game nerd, and one of my favorites of all time is the Fallout series, and despite the lackluster release Fallout 76 got, I began playing when the Wastelanders patch was released, and Bethesda appealed to my love of the dark with the game's inclusion of cryptids to the Appalachian Wasteland, and hunting them was, and still is, a hell of a lot of fun. And I said to myself it would be a great time doing a deep dive into the real-world origins of some of the game's cryptids. With that said, let us peel back the leathery egg of today's episode and hope to high hell a facehugger isn't laying in wait. Our first cryptid today comes out of Braxton County, West Virginia, and almost as though Bethesda was reaching for symbolism with making the Flatwoods monster an absolute nightmare to hunt down in the game's world space. There is but a single real-world account of the Flatwoods Monster. On September 22, 1952, brothers Ed and Fred May and their friend Tommy Heyer were playing in a field, like you do in West Virginia in the 50s, and saw an object cross the sky and land at a local farm. The boys returned to the May home and spoke of what they saw. Kathleen May and a group of the boys, consisting of Kathleen May, Neil Nunley, Ronnie Shaver, that's an actual name, and as well as West Virginia National Guardsman Eugene Lemon. The group went to the farm where the object landed. They reached the top of the hill and Nunley saw a pulsing red light. 
Lemon shined his flashlight in the direction of the pulsing red light, and the party saw a tall, man-like figure with a round face, surrounded by a pointed hood-like shape. Admittedly, descriptions of the Flatwoods monster vary. In an article for Fate magazine, UFO writer and notorious nerd troll Gray Barker and if you'd like to hear why I dislike Gray Barker, check out my look into the Men in Black. Barker described the monster as being ten feet tall, with a round, blood-red face, a large hood-like shape around its head, and eyes that emitted green-orange light with a dark black body. Kathleen May described the Flatwoods monster as having small, claw-like hands with clothing-like folds with a head that resembled the Ace of Spades. The May account goes on to say the figure made a loud hissing noise and glided towards the group, which naturally made the entire party retreat in horror. The group stated they were nauseated by a pungent mist a local sheriff investigated the area and saw, heard, and smelled nothing. According to Barker, Ailey Stewart of the Braxton Democrat discovered skid marks and an odd gummy deposit. This also brought the UFO community into the fray, believing what Stewart found was clear-cut evidence of a UFO landing. Naturally, the sighting of a supernatural creature has its fair share of detractors. Shocker! Joel Nickel of the Committee for Special Inquiry investigated the case in 2000. Nickel concluded that the bright light was most likely a meteor. The red light was likely an aircraft navigation beacon, and the monster was more than likely a barn owl. It was further argued in Nichols' findings that the witness's perception was distorted by a heightened sense of anxiety. Nichols' findings are shared by multiple other investigators. He stated that the shape and movement and sound are all consistent with a barn owl perched in a tree. The plant life under the owl may have created the illusion of a lower body. Researchers said the witness's inability to determine if the creature had arms, coupled with Kathleen May's reports of the creature having small, claw-like hands, which extended to the front of it, added further fuel to the the monster was a barn owl argument. Alright, acolytes. Take a moment to ruminate on what just transpired. We'll be right back. What's going on, everybody? How we all doing? My name is Mike Blackheart, host of the repository and CEO of Blackheart Omnimedia. I'm coming to you all today to let you know we've expanded into the world of gaming and are coming to YouTube with the baldest stream ever. And we will be playing some of my personal favorite RPGs, as well as giving you all the pleasure of watching me get my butt handed to me on a silver platter in games like Fortnite and Call of Duty Warzone. And as the stream grows, you'll be growing with me. Every other month, I'll be taking user suggestions as to what to stream, and based off of that, I'll do a weekly stream at the start of the month as a way of saying thanks for being fans and followers of the show. 
Want to watch me kill some monsters? Want to watch me get trash-talked by a bunch of 14-year-olds? Remember, tune in on YouTube to the baldest stream ever. Let's get back to the repository. Our next cryptid is, by far, the most terrifying. Imagine it. You're alone in the woods and it begins to rain heavily, and your only option for shelter is a deep cave. You enter the cave and you smell it. Rotting flesh. Something tells you to run, but something in the back of your mind pushes you forward and then you see it. Ten feet of gray-skinned, emaciated hunger and rage. Were this an actual scenario, you'd be laying eyes on the Wendigo. The legends of the Wendigo stem from the Algonquin-speaking peoples. Physical descriptions of the Wendigo vary, however, across the myriad of interpretations, its intentions are always the same. It is a malevolent, cannibalistic, murderous creature with unending hunger. According to myth, the Wendigo has strong associations with winter, the north, god save me, I'm getting some real strong Game of Thrones vibes here, coldness, famine, and starvation. I reiterate, I'm starting to question whether I'm talking about Wendigos or fucking White Walkers. However, I digress. An Ojibwe scholar by the name of Basil H. Johnston described the Wendigo, saying, The Wendigo was gaunt to the point of emaciation. Its desiccated skin pulled tightly over its bones, with its bones pushing out against its skin. Its complexion the ash gray of death, and its eyes pushed deep into its sockets. The Wendigo looked like a gaunt skeleton recently disinterred from the grave. What lips it had were tattered and bloody, unclean and suffering from suppuration of the flesh. The Wendigo gave off a strange and eerie odor of decay, decomposition, of death and corruption. Certain traditions describe the Wendigo as giants, many times larger than human beings. The Wendigo is also said to be able to grow in proportion to the size of the human it consumed, with its hunger never sated. The Wendigo are always portrayed as gluttonous and thin due to extreme starvation. Tribes that believe in the Wendigo see it as the embodiment of greed, gluttony, and excess, never being satisfied and killing countless victims, constantly searching for fresh prey. Other tribal traditions view the Wendigo as humans overcome by greed, using this as a scare tactic and cautionary tale to encourage cooperation and moderation. The myths also state that a Wendigo could be created when a human resorts to cannibalism. The Wendigo is such a deep-seated cultural belief that a mental illness, Wendigo psychosis, was named after it, having people committing terrible acts claiming they were possessed by a Wendigo spirit. 
Wendigo psychosis backs up the Wendigos could be created after a human resorts to cannibalism argument. In 1661, the Jesuits produced a book detailing their missionary work and spoke of an instance of the condition. What caused us greater concern was the news that met us upon entering the lake. Namely, the men departed by our conductor for the purpose of summoning the nations to the North Sea and assigning them a rendezvous where they were to await our coming. They had met their death the previous winter in a very strange manner. Those poor men, according to a report given to us, were seized with an ailment unknown to us but not very unusual to the people we were seeking. They are afflicted with neither lunacy, hypochondria, nor frenzy, but of a combination of all three species of disease, which affects their imaginations and causes more than a canine hunger. This makes them so ravenous for human flesh that they pounce upon women and children like veritable werewolves and devour them voraciously, without being able to appease or glut their, ever their appetites ever seeking fresh prey, and the more greedily they eat. This ailment attached over deputies as death is the sole remedy among the simple people for checking such acts of murder. They were slain in order to stay the course of madness. A famous case of Wendigo psychosis comes from the story of a Plains Cree trapper named Swiftrunner. In the winter of 1878, Swiftrunner and his family were starving and his eldest son died. The family was 25 miles away from an emergency food supply. Despite that knowledge, Swiftrunner butchered his wife and five children and ate them. He later confessed to the crime claiming to have been possessed, and after an investigation, given the proximity to the food supply and the sheer carnage, the authorities ruled Swiftrunner is not possessed or insane. He was later executed at Fort Saskatchewan. Instances of Wendigo psychosis began to diminish, if not entirely disappear, by the 20th century as a result of tribes having greater contact with Europeans. The International Statistical Classification of Diseases and Health Problems classify Wendigo psychosis as rare historic accounts of cannibalistic obsession. Symptoms included depression, homicidal and suicidal thoughts, and a delusional compulsion to eat human flesh. Our final cryptid, while a fascinating story, is clear-cut proof of the power of sensationalist journalism. The Snallygaster is a chimera-like creature that stems from German immigrant superstition among a group of settlers in Frederick County, Maryland. The earliest sightings began in the 1730s. Accounts describe a monster referred to as the Schnellegeist, or the quick ghost for those of us who don't speak German. The creature was described as half reptile, half bird with a metallic beak dem and demonic features, and in several accounts, the beast is reported to have octopus tentacles. It swooped silently through the sky to carry off its victims. Early reports say the monster sucked the blood of its prey. Farmers were so scared of the Snallygaster, they resorted to 
painting seven-pointed stars on their barns as a totem to ward off the beast. Newspapers throughout February and March of 1909 reported on encounters between locals and a beast with enormous wings, a long pointed bill, claws like steel hooks, with an eye in the center of its forehead was observed making screeches like a train whistle. The Snallygaster drew tremendous media attention with the Smithsonian Institute going so far as to offer a reward for the creature's hide. Allegedly, it was reported that even former U.S. President and eternal badass Theodore Roosevelt was going so far as to cancel an African safari to hunt the Snallygaster himself. All of these news articles, however, were later revealed to be a hoax perpetrated by two reporters from the Middletown Valley Register. Editor George Roderick and reporter Ralph Wolf created all of these articles in an effort to generate readership for their paper. The descriptions created by the pair borrow themes from German folklore, including dragon-esque creatures that snatch up little kids and livestock, as well as borrowing further themes from the Jersey Devil who had appearances begin to crop up weeks earlier. So. Acolytes, I am compelled to ask, as I often am, what did you all think of the episode? I, for one, take home the knowledge that these stories are what helped create the fantastic tapestry that is American urban legend storytelling. It also shows just how shitty some people can be. I mean... You have a bunch of really scared-to-the-bone farmers and your two scumbag reporters going, Well, readership for our paper sucks. Time to scare some people even more. Acolytes, that is all the time we have for today. Tune in for more tales of the murderous and macabre scoured from the depths of history and the internet. You can find me on social media on my personal page at Mike underscore BlackheartX, on Twitter at RepositoryPodX, and coming soon to YouTube, the baldest stream ever. Ladies and gentlemen, freaks and geeks, acolytes, my friends, once again, I am your host. Chronicler of the Dark and Lore Keeper of the Murderous and Macabre, Mr. Blackheart, signing off. This has been a Blackheart production. <laughs>